want us to take our Bibles this morning as we turn to our time of study and open them to Romans chapter 3. And I want us to focus our attention on the final words of the Apostle Paul in this chapter. As God continually does for us, providentially, He has us in this text on this particular day for His particular reasons. I truly believe that each and every time we come to the Scriptures to study, whether it's on our own or whether it's as a group, the principles and the truths that are brought to our attention during those times have to do with what is taking place in our very lives. And so I hope you have come with that in mind as we study scriptures this morning. I hope you come with the reality of knowing that God wants you to hear exactly what is said in this passage, in this moment, for this very time. We know that our hearts before God are to be clear, to be clear of known sin, any sin that we might know to have in our hearts or know to have in our life or to have made that right before the Lord, if not also before those whom we may have sinned against. And the Apostle Paul, in our text this morning, reminds us of one of the most heinous of all expressions of sin. That is the sin of pride. The sin of pride. Not only is it difficult for us to hear about pride, but what makes it so difficult is the fact that All of us here today know without a shadow of a doubt that we exercise this sin more often than we'd like to admit. And if we go so far as to say that we do not have pride, that we are not prideful, we immediately show that our heart is filled with it. It's kind of like humility, right? If you say you're humble, you're not really humble. Subtly, we can even exercise pride when it comes to faith. Um, I'll explain how that works or what that might look like here in a moment. But expressions of pride are really, as I think about it, they're the, they're the fingers of hell that, that grip a person who refuses to embrace Jesus Christ. It's an expression of pride. It's, it's the expression of the father of lies, believing that somehow you can contribute to the salvation that you hope to have from the coming judgment that is to come. I was listening this week intently at Franklin Graham speak about his father on the news. It's kind of ironic to me how the world likes to shut out the gospel and God just plasters it on TV for all to hear and all to see. And fortunately, Franklin Graham was talking about the reality of the coming judgment. Everybody must realize there is a coming judgment. There is a coming judgment, and you have to have an answer in that judgment. And if your answer is anything other than Jesus Christ alone, then it is born out of pride. And I trust that this is what we will see clearly this morning. There's no room in God's house for spiritual pride. It is not allowed. We'll see that in this text this morning, and I want us to just focus our attention on it as I read verses 27 to 31 of chapter 3 in Romans. Beginning in verse 27, Paul asks the question, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God of Jews only? Is he not of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith is one. So do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We 
establish the standard. From time to time, I enjoy reading uh, biographies, biographical material and biographies of other Christians who have lived long before me, especially those whom God seems to have used in some mighty, mighty way. And one of those such characters throughout history is one you surely know, Hudson Taylor. I know you have probably heard about his life if you haven't read about his life, but he lived in the 1800s. And one summer, God placed upon his heart a yearning for the people of China. Now, God oftentimes uses different means by which he moves upon the hearts of his people. And one of those means in Hudson Taylor's life was an issue of spiritual pride. Not pride of himself, but pride in the congregation of people where he had been attending church in England. The biographer said this about it. As he looked around the congregation, that is Hudson Taylor, he saw prosperous shoekeepers and wives in bonnets and crinoline. He saw scrubbed children trained to hide their impatience and pew upon pew of wealthy merchants. And the atmosphere of smug piety sickened him to the point that he seized his hat and he left. The biographer went on to say, unable to bear the sight of, the congrega- of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, he wandered out to the sand alone and in great spiritual agony, and there on the beach, he said, I prayed for 24 willing, skilled laborers. Well, history tells us that God answered that prayer with a yes, and God mightily used Hudson Taylor and those other people to reach China for Christ. And that eventually became known as the China Inland Mission in spite of China's atheistic roots, even today, there are many Chinese who have come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. We even have a family who attends here on a regular basis who happens to be in China, the Bebos, who came to know Christ, I think, as a direct influence of that ministry in China. As I read about his life, I began to wonder what specifically he saw in the Christians that he was with that day. What did Hudson Taylor see in those people besides the outward comfortability of life? Because those things that they had, being shop owners and and wearing nice clothes and those kinds of things, are not necessarily sinful things. And as I was studying for our time this morning, I began to realize that possibly it was the same thing that the Apostle Paul is warning about when he asks the question in verse 27, where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? Spiritual pride. Why would Paul have to even ask that question in the first chapters of Romans after all that he has said concerning the origin of true spiritual life? Why would Paul have to even ask the question, where is boasting? Where is this boasting that seems to be going on all over the place about your own Christianity? Where is it if, in fact, true spiritual living comes from everywhere but you? Of course, we understand it to be a rhetorical question that Paul is asking. And yet, to reject faith alone for salvation is actually the outworking of spiritual pride. And even to think that faith is your own spiritual effort for justification is to misunderstand saving faith at its very least and to be living as if you justified yourself. Boasting is among the most obvious characteristics within the world. One so very hard to master for us, even as true believers. 
Boasting is an interesting thing because boasting can be either good or bad. Right? We use it that way. For example, we often say to our kids, I'm very proud of you. Very proud of you. That's boasting, pride. I'm very proud of you. And what we normally mean by that is just simply that we are thankful that the decisions they're making or the, the direction of their life or whatever it is they're doing or the job they did, we're grateful that it has been well done. We're proud of that. We mean that in a good way. It's a synonym for pride. It's good pride. In fact, it's used that way if you turn over to Romans chapter 15 for a moment. Paul even uses it this way. In Romans chapter 15, the very same word used in chapter 3, Romans chapter 15 and verse 17, Paul says, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. I've Uh, This is good boasting. I'm proud of these things. It's good for me to do that. I'm proud of what God has done, and I only want to point to Him. That's what Paul's saying. That's the positive side. But there is a negative side as well, and that's what Paul is using here in verse 27. Where is boasting? The negative side. This is about pride of self. This is pride about me. In other words, where does that kind of pride of self-promotion, this is what Paul's asking, where does the pride of self-promotion fit with the gospel of faith alone? Where do those two tracks meet, or do they? This is why I've entitled our message today, There's No Room in God's House. Because in God's kingdom, there is no room for bad boasting, especially when it comes to faith. We currently live in the age of self, don't we? We live in the age of self. Or at least it seems to be more and more prevalent in our time. Self-satisfaction, self-promotion, I'm self-made. All of that is rampant in our world. We even see this in the name of our products. We have I everything. Listen, I'm a big Apple fan, but it's I everything. I mean, why don't they just call the company that? We're I everything. It's all about us. It's the me generation. It's all about me. People are totally consumed with themselves, with their own desires, with their own collection of possessions. They're absorbed with their own welfare, with their their own feelings. Self is everything. The saddest part is that it's not only epidemic in the world at large, but it's pervasive, unfortunately, in the church, especially when it comes to the doctrine of faith alone. This is why I listened so carefully this week to Franklin Graham, because the gospel mostly presented today is described as an answer to your problems. All you have to do is believe, and all your problems will be fixed. It's touted as the pathway to success, the pathway to real happiness. Believe in Jesus, and your life will be healthy, wealthy, and... Well, that sounds good from a human perspective. In fact, to be saved from sin is our greatest need. We wouldn't begin to argue with that fact. And once saved, there is security, knowing that you will spend eternity with God. All of that is actually true. And all of those wonderful truths involve point to our great need. Those realities are true. They're great blessings. There is no comparative value to those things. Right? We have sin. Greatest need is to have that guilt taken away. And from that, when guilt is gone, we have a complete security. But all of those realities primarily have focus on us. When you think about them, what we receive, 
We receive the declaration of innocence. We receive security with God. We we get all of those things. And and if we're not thinking rightly about those things, we become very man-centered. When the Bible clearly reveals that the focus of salvation is not primarily us. The focus of salvation is God. The reason and purpose of salvation is that God would be recognized as central in it all. In other words, spiritual life is to be God-centered in every way. It begins with God, it ends with God, and that includes faith. Now, this may come as a shock to us, maybe, but salvation is not primarily for us. That may shock us. Maybe we haven't thought about salvation that way. Salvation is not primarily for us or for what we might receive when we are saved. The reason God saves anybody is so that He might be glorified through them. That's why God saves. God doesn't need saving. He doesn't need help. But through salvation, His wondrous glory is put clearly on display. And so our very reason for existence and His very reason for saving was and is continually to bring Him what is due only to Him. That is the glory that He is due This, according to the Westminster Catechism, is our chief end, why we were created. We were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But oftentimes, what keeps God from being rightly glorified in salvation from those whom He is saving is the exercise of spiritual pride that somehow says, I got here by my own effort. I did this on my own. This is what Paul's whole point is in the text before us this morning. If man is justified, if if man is declared righteous by a holy God through a means that is outside of him, then where does boasting about his own efforts at spiritual moralism or his own belief, where does it fit? Where does boasting about that fit if you're saved by something that's outside of you? It was God's righteousness on display at the cross, not yours, not mine, not anyone who saved. It was God's, and God does not condone sin. Remember verse 25 and 26, that God displayed publicly? as a propitiation in His blood through faith? Who? Jesus Christ, right? To demonstrate His righteousness. Why? Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. And for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So what was passed over i.e. the Old Testament sins who hadn't fully been taken care of, was only passed over for a time. All the way from the day Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, all the way to the time when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, everything there of all who would ever believe upon God heaped upon Jesus Christ in display. No one could rightly say to God, See, you never took care of that sin. No, it was passed over for a time in order that it could be paid for on the cross. So that he might be shown both to be just and the justifier of those who, through faith, entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. You see, so the primary purpose of salvation was not a matter of getting sinful us to a holy God. 
That's not the primary purpose of salvation, that, that, oh, this is the way in which God could get us to Him. No, but rather it was our holy God getting to the place where He could accept sinful us without violating His holy character. Listen, salvation's primary purpose is to bring glory to God, not to elevate you and I as Christians. Paul's question is, okay, since that is the case, since it's been clearly seen from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 26, since that is the case, where in the world does boasting of self fit? And the answer he gives is right there. It is excluded. It is excluded. Verse 27. Why? Why is it excluded? Because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and therefore man has no basis for self-exaltation. As if he was any help to God in saving himself. didn't help save himself at all. In fact, truth be told, he was running from God. Wanted nothing to do with God. And so, in in our remaining time this morning, I, I want to just begin to give us three reasons why there is no room for spiritual pride in God's house. No room at all. And the first is this. Spiritual life is by the gift of faith alone. Now, that may seem very simplistic on our mind, but I want to unpack this a bit for us because it's, this is an area where spiritual pride can creep in and we don't even think about it. Verse 27 and 28, he says, what kind of law then? If boasting isn't there, it's excluded by what kind of law? In other words, what, what principle excludes it? Is it the principle of works? No, but by a principle, if you will, of faith. He's not speaking of the Mosaic law there. He's not speaking of the ceremonial, keeping the ritual kind of law. He's just speaking of the principle. By what principle is it brought in or brought out? What's what's the idea there? That's what he's talking about when he uses the word law. There's no boasting. It's excluded by what kind of principle? Is it the principle of works? No, it's the principle of of faith. Well, we maintain that a man is justified by faith, notice, apart from works of the capital L law, the works of ceremony, all of the ritual, ritualistic, and he's speaking of the Mosaic law in that last word. Now, this isn't new. We've heard it before. And in our study, we've, we've, we've addressed this. We've, we've come to this. Some of us, so much so that we don't want to hear it anymore. Right? Enough already. That's kind of what goes on in our heads. But listen, there is a reason God reminds us of this so often. We need to be continually reminded of this because we can tend to live by works where it comes to faith. We can begin to take ownership of the very faith that God has given us as if we produced it. You say, how so? Well, let me just show us if I can. Verse 28 says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, apart from any help on our part, that's what Paul is saying. Apart from any help on our part, apart from keeping any rule of God, God's way of salvation, God's way of of the ability for him to 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 not be, uh, 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 to not have a finger pointed at him and say you're just not a, a righteous God because you're accepting sinners. For him to be able to save anybody, God's way of salvation is salvation that proclaims that His law has been kept and it has been completely fulfilled by or through another, and that another is Jesus Christ. God's law has been. Fulfilled. In other words, the law still makes the demand. 
law says be holy. Man can't be holy. Man can't do it right. I've been reading in my own devotions chronologically through the Bible, and I just got through Leviticus. And Leviticus, you know, some people go, I don't want to do my devotions in Leviticus. Listen, do your devotions in Leviticus. Why? Because it continually shows you how, how holy God is, and the requirements of God are so strict, and, and the reality and the, the meticulous nature of what God gives to Israel is so exact that there's no way that anyone could come away from that and go, yeah, I can do that perfectly. I mean, just reading through it ought to be enough. The law still makes its demands, but God provides a way whereby we can be saved even though we could not and do not keep the law in any kind of way. So salvation, Paul says, verse 28, is apart from the works of the law. The word apart is that original language word chorus. That's really the word. It's not singing chorus, but it's the Greek word chorus. And it means to separate or to be separate. The law condemns, but it does not provide a way for salvation. It's separate the law is separate from the ability to justify. It cannot. It's, it's totally apart from that. Salvation is, according to Paul, it is by faith apart from works. Separate from works. We can see that. It's easy to see that. I mean, we, we don't have to be Greek scholars to understand that. Now, we need to be careful about that, though, because of how sometimes we see faith and what faith does and where faith comes from in the equation. Because if we're not careful, we can and easily oftentimes default into the subtle idea of spiritual pride when it comes to faith. You say, how so? Well, let me just answer that by taking us back to what we heard last Lord's Day. Faith is the what? Agent. Faith is the agent for justification. In other words, faith is nothing but the instrument of salvation. It's the instrument of God's uh, ability or, or right to declare innocent. In other words, nowhere will you find in the Bible Nowhere. You can scour the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Nowhere will you find in the Bible where it says that you are justified, listen, because of your faith. Prepositions are so important in the Bible. Nowhere will you find it where it says because of your faith. Now, you might find a translation that says it that way, but that's not what it means in the original. It's not because of your faith. Nowhere will you find in the Bible that it says we are justified on account of our faith. The Bible never says those kinds of things about saving faith. The Bible says that we are justified, get this, by faith or through faith. Those aren't the same things. They don't mean the same things as because or on account of. In other words, faith is by and through means that faith is the instrument of or the conduit by which the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ becomes ours. Very important. This is very important because it is not faith that saves us. Faith does not save us. What actually saves us is Jesus Christ. And His righteousness, written to our account, imputed to us. It is His vicarious death on the cross that saves us. It is His perfect work accomplished on our behalf. It is God imputing His righteousness to our account. That's what saves us. Faith is simply the agent. Faith is the instrument through which that comes. Faith does not save. So we must never think that it is our faith that is righteousness. Our faith 
is not righteousness. Faith is the gift from God that links us to Christ. Did you hear what I said? Faith is the gift from God that links us to Christ and His righteousness. So therefore, we can never separate the gift of faith from its only object. The only object of saving faith is Jesus Christ. But it is not faith that saves. Now, why is this important? Because if we're not careful, we can begin to boast in faith as if it's ours. In other words, isn't it great that I came to believe in Jesus? That's kind of the idea. Isn't it great that I'm a Christian now, that I believe? Isn't that wonderful? And we're not saying it from the idea that, oh, I'm so thankful that God saved me. We're saying, isn't it great that I finally came to my senses, figured it out, and believe in Jesus? Isn't it great as if, It was something I did as if it was the product of me, as if it was the faith that I somehow brought to the table, as if it's my faith that saved me. When we do that, we've gone from faith as a gift from God to faith as a product of my own effort, product of my own work that I can boast about. As if I did it, my work. But Paul says, no, 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 no. We are justified, notice, by faith, verse 28, apart from works, separate from works. So even the faith that we exercise is not a work of us. And we can never think of it as a work of us. It is apart from works. It's separate from works. Now someone's surely going to say to me, I'm sure afterwards, but after I say this, maybe not. Doesn't it say in James that a man is justified by works and not by faith only? Doesn't it say that? James 2.24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh Uh-oh, Pastor, we just caught you in a trap. No? No? No, you didn't. In fact, go to James chapter 2. True, that's what it says. So how do we reconcile then Romans 3.28, that it is faith alone that justifies, and James 2.24, where James seems to be saying it's faith and works that justifies. Now, in order for us... To reconcile these kinds of problems, these kinds of passages, we have to remember something as we do our Bible study. That an author, when he wrote, when the Holy Spirit uh, inspired an author to write a text, he had an intent. There was an intent in the author's argument. And so you have to understand what he's arguing against or what he's arguing for. And we have to remember that when we come to problems that we find in Scripture, especially ones where it seems like there's a contradiction. And Paul, in Romans, as we have been seeing in our study, he's dealing with those who desire to reach salvation through effort. In other words, these, he's speaking to people who, who want to think, the Jewish people, because he's already dealt with the Gentiles back in chapter 2, now he's speaking with his Jewish brothers. Listen, you want to try to earn your way into heaven through your own efforts, believing in God, however that looks. Paul's dealing with all of that. And his answer is, no, 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 you can't do that. Salvation is by faith alone, apart from your effort. That's what Paul's dealing with. Makes sense. It's clear. You can't work your way into heaven. There's no way for you to work your way into heaven. You have to have faith. It's faith alone that saves that brings, ushers you in, that links you with the righteousness you need. So that's what Paul's dealing with. That's his intent. James has an intent as well. And James is dealing with those who would consider faith an intellectual assent only. 
In other words, much like many today who just say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus. And they say words and it's intellectual assent to who Jesus is and and maybe the things about Jesus. But that's all it is. There's no proof in the one who says they have faith. In other words, they say they believe, but there's there's no show in the life that they believe. Like I said before, how do I know all of you believe that a chair will hold you up? Because you're sitting in it. You could stand and say, I believe a chair will hold me. And I'll say, well, show me that you believe that. Sit down in it. This is what James is dealing with. So James is dealing with those who would consider this intellectual faith. And so he's saying that you have faith. And if you say you have faith, it's worthless faith without supporting and confirming a change of life that comes with that faith. You can't just say, I believe. That's worthless faith. And so he says in verse 26 of chapter 2, faith without works is dead, right? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, So faith without works is dead. He's saying, look, you can go to the graveyard and say, here, you can tell me all these people are alive if you want, but a dead body without animation is a dead body. It's worthless. It's meaningless to say they're alive. They're dead. Same thing with faith. You can say you have faith. You can say you believe all you want. But without works, it's dead. It's dead faith. In other words... Talk of believing is of no value. Talk of saying, I believe in Jesus for my salvation is of zero value if there's no works involved. And you notice this in James chapter 2. Go back to verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? In other words, he has nothing that attends to that and shows that that's real belief. Is that faith savable? Can that faith save him? And then he gives an example. If a brother or sister without clothing is in need of daily food, and one of you says, one of you who says you have faith is what his idea is, and one of you says to them, ah, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you don't give him what is necessary, what use is that? Oh, I love you as a brother. Oh, you're sweet. You have a need? Yeah, be warm, be filled. Bye-bye. What? You said you love them. Well, what are you talking about? There's no real love there. Even so, verse 17, if faith, if it has no works, it's dead by itself. You see? That's the idea. We remember the, the whole illustration from Luke chapter 18, contrasting those two ideas about what you come to God with. Some come to God and want to justify themselves and say, oh, I'm such a good person. Aren't you glad, Lord, that I believe in you? The publican comes and just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says that man went down justified to his house. Go back to Romans chapter 3, because unfortunately this oftentimes is the attitude of many professing Christians. I like to thank God that we're not like the world. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of the sinners in the world, that I've believed in you. We spend our time with other Christians. We find ourselves in the church. We give weekly. We say, in essence, I'm glad, God, you saw fit to look down through the annals of time and in your omnipresence and omniscience you saw that there would be a time when I would believe and so you foresaw and chose me. Isn't it good that God did that? That's how we think. Yet our life may be destitute of any faith-produced works. We have no time for the things of God. We have No time for people. We're just too busy. We're unwilling to pay the cost of discipleship. Why? Because we suddenly think our faith is ours. And all along, that kind of faith is a work that we bring to the table. 
we assume that God is so thankful that he'll finally exercise himself and bring us to his house. We're just like the Pharisee rather than the publican in Luke 18. But when we allow the words of the Apostle Paul in verse 27 and 28 to sink upon us, we ponder the wondrous truth of the grace of God that he has poured out on behalf of us undeservedly. And we come to recognize, you know what, even the reality of me believing in Jesus Christ and placing my trust in him for my justification is not mine at all. It's a gift of God not mine at all. Because truth be known, had God not gifted me that faith, I wouldn't have believed in Him ever. And Because He's caused us to believe, we now desire to live for Him. Because I rest in the joy of that justification which He graciously gave me in Christ and even gave me the faith to believe in Jesus Christ. I now live for Him because in Christ I am declared innocent before God. Paul says, where's boasting in all of that? You see, instead of patting ourselves on the back, we just point to Christ. It's all Christ. Why? Because we fully understand that our spiritual life comes from the law of faith, the principle of faith, not from some principle of works and effort, boasting even in my own faith. You say, well, what are the signs of saving faith? How do I know? Let me just give you a few, just a few, really quickly. I'll just give you a few signs of saving faith. One is true repentance. True repentance. All who are saved hate sin. All who are saved hate sin. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible tells us that it is impossible to love God and love something else. Can't love God and love something else. Those who truly love God will genuinely hate sin. So that when they do sin, when you and I as Christians sin, our desire is to repent of it, to turn from it, to be willing in our heart to do what God would ask us to do so that our pattern of life is that reality. For the true Christian, the pattern of the life is hating sin, and when sin is there and you see it, you willingly turn from it. You're turning from sin to God in obedience. That's what repentance looks like. It's not perfection. Certainly not perfection because we sin all the time. But it's desire, it's direction, it's willingness. Willingness to do what God would have and a, and a, and a working at that. It's that willingness to continually do what God desires. Here's the reality. If our sin doesn't bother us, if it doesn't bring conviction in our lives concerning its offense to God, when I sin, if my sin doesn't bring a conviction to me that it's, it's a heinous offense against the holy God so that I'm humbly willing to follow in His steps, then I have to ask myself, is my salvation real? I may have been sorry over my sin. I may have, have, have expressed some sorrow because I saw how bad it was, but I don't really want to turn from it. Maybe I have to ask myself, am I even saved? Have I had real faith? I think there's another sign of saving faith, and that is this, a desire for practical righteousness. I kind of touched on when we talked about just repentance just there, but this desire for practical righteousness. Remember what David said in Psalm 42? As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for God. Do you long for God? Does your soul thirst for God? Thirst, thirst for 
for His character, His likeness, His glory, the reflection of His character to be seen in your life? Is that your continual desire? I mean, deep down, rooted in you so that, so that you're fighting against those things that are brought up, the sin that you hate? That kind of desire for God is the direction of a true believer's life. Not perfection, but it is the direction. Why? Because God's so precious to them. God's so precious to them. And there's a third. It's a hatred of sin, that, that willingness or desire for righteousness in your life. And then third, it's a willingness to obey. Right? It's the, it's the recognition of sin and, and repenting. It's the desire for righteousness. And then that willingness to obey, that encompasses a submission to Christ. The outworking of submission to Christ in in the outworking of love for God and for my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the idea. Here's how James said it, James chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Apostle John wraps it up really clearly. 1 John chapter 2. I'll tell you, these are just hard words to escape. The Apostle John wrote with such a sharp pencil. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. I don't know how you get out from under this. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. All right, you want to know? Where your heart is before God, here's here's the test. If we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in you. But, whoever keeps His word in Him, here's what we talked about just now, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You see, that's obedience. That's the willingness and the desire to to walk as God has called us to walk, to live as God has called us to live, not just to say we believe. True faith is manifested in those things. Desire to keep His Word. Do what His Word says. To walk in it. Verse 9, the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness even now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and he walks in the darkness and doesn't even know where he's going. Because his eyes are blind. In other words, he's deceived as to the reality of what his life is really like. He's blind to it all. So there's no room for spiritual pride in God's house because salvation is by the gift of faith alone. Faith alone. There's no works. You can't even boast about your faith. It's not yours. It's faith apart from works at all. What a miraculous and gracious transaction. There is no room in God's house for spiritual pride, especially with faith. None at all. None of us have arrived by our own efforts. None of us got here on our own. We were drugged here by God and given faith that we might exercise in His Son. Even our faith is not our effort. So if we're saved, it's by faith alone. Because of God alone. 
And in Christ alone, we now have the ability to actually do what pleases God. And that brings glory to Him, which is why God saves anybody. Because it brings Him glory. Well, we don't have time for the rest, so we'll leave it till next time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you again for our time in your word this morning. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for the gift of faith, for the ability by your hand to even force us to believe. None of us wanted you. None of us would ever want you with a heart filled with sin, and yet you came to us, granted us this great gift. Father, thank you for opening our hearts to Jesus Christ, for causing us to believe, for imputing to us his righteousness, for granting us the miraculous declaration of innocence before you, while you look at your son who has paid the ultimate penalty for us. It's been rightly said, the only thing we bring to the equation is the penalty that was due sin. And you paid it all. You made it all happen. It was much like the Abrahamic covenant, that unilateral covenant in which you promised and gave it all to fulfill it all. And we are the recipients of it. Father, I pray that we would understand these things, never boast even in our faith. For you alone deserve the praise for it all. Because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the gift we have in him, and now we've been given even greater the seal of that, the Holy Spirit, that we might now walk in obedience to you, even here. So we long for glory. And yet we long to glorify you even now as we live on this earth. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.